Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Keith Rathbone, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm coming to you from Macquarie University, and I'm here with Bonita Merciades, who's the author of Whatever It Takes, the inside story of the FIFA way from Powderhouse Press in 2018. Uh, welcome, Bonita. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Keith. I, I want to encourage all the listeners to go out and, and pick up a copy of this book, especially if you're interested in an insider's account of, of FIFA. Um, I'm hoping that Bonita can can provide some insight into the Australian bid and, and can talk to us a little bit more about, about her experiences as, as a participant in that bid. But first, Bonita, I'd love to know how you entered into the soccer or football world. We can call it soccer or football, whichever you prefer. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. I, I'm not hung up about what it's called, really. Um... How did I get involved? I, I was basically born into the game in, in some senses in that um, my parents came to this country as displaced persons after the Second World War and very similar to a lot of people who came at that time, part of their whole integration into a new community was two things, church and football. <laughs> and most of them sort of built their churches and then they built their soccer clubs and you know, by the time I came along quite some years later, you know, my parents were very much into the local football club and it's what we did um, every every weekend. We went along to soccer. So I sort of grew up in it. And then many years later, um, you know, I've been involved as a, as a parent, as a soccer mum. I've been a volunteer almost continuously in the game for 35 years or so. Um, and then I came into it professionally on, at, on two occasions, um, once about 20 years ago when I was um, involved with the game for a short time, in between working in government because my husband had been moved around and then more than about 10 years ago as well um, or a little bit over 10 years ago I was also involved professionally and that's how I came to work in, on Australia's bid for the 2018-2022 World Cup. So I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about how whatever it takes developed as a writing project. One of the things um, that comes up again and again in the book is that you were taking notes and other people maybe weren't taking notes. So I, I, were you starting out at the beginning thinking the Australian bid is, is going to be a fascinating story and I'd like to be able to tell it or did this develop later? Uh, well, I generally take notes <laughs> at work, not, not, not from a diary perspective, but just so... I can recall what was discussed at a meeting and what action needs to take, you know, the usual sorts of things. Everyone goes about their work different ways, I guess, but I've just always taken notes. I have years of notes. Um, so there wasn't any conscious thing about uh, I must take notes about this because of I think something's going to happen. It was more that that was my general work practice. Having said that, 
I was always a reluctant participant in the bid team. Um, I was actually working at Football Federation Australia uh, before that. I was head of corporate and public affairs and was responsible for the full gamut that those sorts of jobs are usually responsible for. And I was basically forced to work on the bid as well as doing my ordinary job. And I didn't want to work on the bid because I knew that anything that involved FIFA um, would be dodgy. <laughs> um and I resisted it, but uh, I, I had to do it. So um, I was certainly conscious of that from the very beginning. Yeah, I, I, I um, one of the things that's evident in this book is is just uh, how perhaps dodgy some aspects of FIFA's engagement with the rest of the football world can be. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about when you were writing this book. Uh, what kind of genre did you put it in? At some point in time, I thought of it as a memoir. This is this is Bonita's story. Um, and then other times it felt a little bit like a tell-all. And then other times it was a thriller because it was just turning the pages, waiting to find out what shoe would drop next. So I wondered when you were writing it, kind of how did you think about where this book fit? Well, I wrote it in, I guess, two chunks. Um, the first part, which is a, which really is a memoir of, of my time in that bid team, um, I wrote almost as soon as I was sacked because um, I, I guess, I, I guess that's a spoiler alert, I was sacked from the bid team um, um, because Andrew Jennings, the very great British investigative sports journalist, uh, was talking to me at that time and um he said, write it all down because you, you'll get to the point X years on where you'll forget all the details. So write down the detail and just keep it. And that's what I did. And that's when the first part of it, which is, is a memoir type part, was written. The second part, which I guess is uh, more of an investigative piece. Um, and as you said, you use the term thriller. Practically everyone who's talked to me about the book has said they it's a page turner and they can't put it down once they start reading that part of it particularly. Um, it, that started because of a number of things that happened to me along the way and it got to the point where I thought I'm not going to let the version of history that was out there that I knew was wrong be the final point of of what what happened in all of this. That um, I, I wanted to ensure that there was an insider's perspective on what went on, why it went on, who was involved in doing what. Um, so basically it was for posterity, it was for history, and it was to set the record straight, not about me, um, but about bid teams and FIFA and consultants and how they all interacted each, with each other. And as the title suggests, the extent to which people will go to win and win whether that be a bid, win a point, win a, you know, to, to just be the people be on top. Um, some people will go to extraordinary lengths, and particularly when they have deep pockets. Yeah, the, the um, listeners they they when they pick up a copy of the book will see that the cover just shows uh, a, a pile of money, money falling from the ceiling, maybe a different currencies, dollars, Australian dollars, pounds, euros. Um, and I think evocative of of what maybe some bids were like. I, I wonder if you could. Because the book actually encompasses a very long uh, time frame, I wonder if you could run us through uh, a little bit the dates. Like, when does the Australian bid start, and, and why? What what was the the impetus for Australia to 
even bid for the World Cup in the first place. Well, officially it sort of kicked off in December 2008, but um, we that officially in terms of that's when we were given money by the government, and I'm talking about 46 million Australian dollars by the government to help run the bid. But before that, we had known in uh, probably 2007 um, that we were going to bid, and um, even even before that, had been the glint in the in the eye of our then uh, football federation president. Um, and in 2008, when we hosted the FIFA Congress, it was certainly we had announced to the world that we were bidding, and part of hosting the FIFA Congress was to show what we had to offer as a as a nation, what we could do as hosts. Uh, so it was very early on that we knew um, and almost every decision that was taken within our organisation over a certain period was framed by the entire bid. You know, B, you know, A-League expansion, for instance, um, the decision to expand into two particular areas was nothing to do with whether those areas were ready for an A-League team. It was everything to do with a deal with the state government to ensure that they supported us and and we could get stadiums rebuilt or refurbished. So it was every decision was framed by that and the organisation, I believe, um, really ran into a bit of a state of atrophy over that time because you had some key personnel who were not only doing their job on the bid, including the CEO, but also doing their regular day-to-day job. So for everyone else in the organisation who didn't work on the bid, you know, there were piles, literally piles of papers stuck in in trays uh, where decisions weren't made. And and I think football sort of in this country really suffered a setback in that time, not just because we lost the bid and lost it so badly, but because the organisation sort of ran down with no one actually taking decisions and, and thinking strategically. Yeah, I think the the first part of your book, one of the things that interested me about it at that point in time was just at how uh, intricately connected in some ways the politics of Australia were with the ambitions of, of particular people within the Football Federation um, were, that it seemed to work for a lot of people if Australia got the bid, that it would look good uh, politically for, for Paul Rudd maybe or um, you know, that the FFA was really interested in expanding in certain areas and the bid could could work towards that. Um, I wonder if you can speak a little bit, of course, keeping in mind some of the limitations we might have in speaking, uh, but speak a, a little bit about about the politics of the bid, at least the high politics. Oh, it depends where you start the politics, whether it's FIFA politics or football politics locally or, in fact, Australian politics. Um, there's certainly no doubt that one of the reasons why the Australian government was keen to support the bid, and, and you know, as I said earlier, it was 46 million Australian dollars and a little bit more as well. Um, it, the reason for that is because Australia uh, was also running for um, the Security Council seat at the time, you know, one of the rotating seats, and it suited the Australian government's, um, I guess, campaign for that, which was run out of our Foreign Affairs Department. It suited them to be also have brand Australia, if I can put it that way, um, out and about around the world trying to get the World Cup bid as well. So they that certainly uh, aligned. Um, we certainly, and it gets back to your earlier, earlier question, which I didn't quite answer, and you asked why did we bid. 
one of the major reasons we bid is because we wanted to turbocharge the game. The game here, it, it you know, in Australia, more people play football, soccer than any other sport um, in the country. But we are also still one of we're in a highly competitive um, sporting environment with four football codes and uh, cricket, which is also very popular. Um, we do not have the types of broadcast deals and sponsorship arrangements which some of those other sports have, and we're always the poor cousin. Um, we've never been able to get our game either professionally or at grassroots to the level of capital that we should have in terms of the number of participants, and hosting the World Cup was seen as a way of turbocharging the sport. Um, so as part of that, um, you know, to get back to the politics question, which you touched on earlier, uh, yes, in talking with state governments, um, you know, we or, or even with city councils in some instances, um, it would be about if you invest in this infrastructure, we will be able to put a team here or you'll get X number of games and, and that sort of thing. So it was used as or was attempted to be used as leverage for those sorts of decisions. And I'm spoiler alert for people who aren't aware of 2018, 2022. Australia doesn't get the bid. Did, did that turbocharge effect actually work, though? Do you, do you see that? I mean, you 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 intimated earlier that perhaps the game stagnated because of of some of these effects. And certainly, when I moved here to Australia um, from the U.S., another country with a, a number of football codes. Um, I immediately found a ton of people who played soccer, who followed soccer internationally. Um, but when you look at the newspapers, when you see where teams are playing, you certainly get the sense that it's definitely, as you say, the second uh, cousin to to the AFL or the NRL. So I wonder, you know, was there a turbocharge effect that happened? Was this something that later on people were happy to have participated in or was it just an, in that term a failure? Well, I don't think there was a turbocharge in terms of how the sport was perceived. Overwhelmingly, I think that our bid did us no good. Um, you know, we spent, we our initial grant was $46 million. We got another $4 million at least. So we spent about $50 million of taxpayers' money and we ended up with one lousy vote kicked out in the first round of voting. Um, so I don't think any of that did us any good. I I'm not sure in the football world, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was sacked about nine to ten months before the vote happened. And all the feedback I ever received was that um, our stocks didn't raise in the football world. In fact, if anything, it got worse. And, and you know, I, I quote people in the book, credible people in the book, who said that time and time again that Australia Australia's bid was seen as the dirty bid, um, even even more so than some of the others. And I think, um, you know, in terms of working on it, uh, it's hard for me to answer that. Um, you know, as I said, I didn't ever want to work on the bid and uh, I don't know what others who did work on it now feel about it sort of 10 years on. Although I, I do, again, quote my ex-boss, I, I met up with him about um, six, five months before I finished the book and, and let him know that I was just about finished oh, sorry, before the book was published, that I had finished the book and it was going to be published. And, you know, he made the point that that whole period in his life is behind him and he doesn't want to think about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. He just wants to 
erase it from his mind. So I think that says something about how people felt about it. Yeah, I certainly get get the sense by the time you finish the book that many of the people involved in the bid felt um, not, I don't mean a sense of shame, but a certain sense of, of compromise by what had happened, perhaps. And, and maybe this is, at times when I was reading it, I was like, this feels like a very familiar, familiar FIFA story, right? FIFA can sometimes, when when you read about it in the news, feel like it's it has a compromising effect on on people that it's around. Um, did you feel like this was a, a familiar FIFA story that you? I mean, you said to your earlier, one of the reasons you didn't want to get involved is because you knew FIFA. Um, it's a complicated it's a complicated place, a complicated thing. Um, but how much of that? Did you did you feel beforehand, and how much of that did you just learn about in the process? Was it was it what you expected, or was it worse? Or, or? I think it was probably worse. Um, I you know when I when I say I was uncomfortable about uh, a process run by FIFA, I have to say the administrative part of that process was excellent. You know, the person who ran it within FIFA headquarters, if they said. Um, this was going to happen by a certain date, it happened. So I'm not talking about administration or staff here, I'm talking about the football politicians. I, Because I'd been team manager of the Socceroos, um, that's the Australian national football team, about you know, 10 years before that, I had and had travelled a bit with that team and, and we had been members of Oceania Football Confederation at the time and so had some dealings with people then. You know, you couldn't help but feel... Um, when you were with some of those people, that um, they probably didn't conduct themselves the same way as, as we might expect. Um, so that, you know, when I talk about I felt uncomfortable from the outset, that's partly the reason why. But in terms of what it was like when I was involved in it and seeing what was going on, I, I think it was actually worse. And it was worse because, you know, we had... A few, uh, three international consultants in particular who were paid $15 million in the end between them, which included some, um, you know, deliverables in that as well. It wasn't all $15 million for them, but that was the total amount they got. They were responsible basically for the strategy around our bid and making sure that we won. And it was clear that they, um, you know, they... They, they were not ordinary consultants. You know, I've worked, I worked in government and the not-for-profit sector before working in football for a very long time and have worked with consultants, you know, from all of the big consulting firms and small consulting firms. These people were not ordinary consultants. There were no reports. There was no <laughs> accountability. It was just about deals done behind closed doors and it was about big noting themselves and... Um, it was, you know, saying that something was important when it clearly wasn't important. Or, you know, one of the stories I tell when I first met one of the consultants was that he was quoting, going through the FIFA Executive Committee as it was at the time and, and talking about briefing on, on them. And you know, most of the stuff was either gossip or innuendo or things that were in the public domain. Or, in fact, in the case of a few people, our own diplomatic service had reported it through the Foreign Affairs Department to us already. So, yeah, they, they were very overblown 
in terms of what they could deliver. And you know, I, I kept saying this. I, I kept saying to my boss and to the president of the Football Federation here that these people were not going to win us the bid. Um, and I was right. And was it was it a pleasure to be right? Absolutely not. Um, I think Australia would host a terrific World Cup, but uh, not on the conditions under which we operated or the context in, or the environment in which that bid took place and in which we chose to participate. Yeah, so maybe you can talk a little bit about what was what was the strategy that that you all had developed for the Australian bid and, and, and did you have a sense that maybe there was another strategy that you weren't privy to or, or what was Australia's sell? Well, first of all, we were bidding for both 2018 and 2022 publicly. <clears throat> um, the view was that in 2018 we could well, it could be, the, it was a Stephen Bradbury strategy and um, for those of you who are into Winter Olympics, you'll remember Stephen Bradbury won by being the only man left standing in his speed skating race at one stage. Um, and we thought, you know, by the time this per, this country gets uh, voted out or something or rather else happens here, we could be the only ones left standing and we could win 2018 by a fluke of some, in some regard. Um, but the focus was 2022 because the general view was that a country from Europe would get 2018 and therefore 2022 was up for grabs. And, um, of course, then it, even though it was against the FIFA regulations, I mean, they had their nice little policy with the regulations saying you mustn't collude with another bidder. But, of course, you would look around at who from Europe you could possibly do a deal with and swap some votes. So that's what everybody was doing, um, everybody. Uh, there is not one bidder that wasn't trying to do that or didn't have discussions around that, and we certainly did. Our, our consultants, you know, God bless them, they actually did get this right. Our consultants were saying we had to do a deal with Russia because Russia was going to win. Um, and I think actually the original plan for FIFA was that Russia and America would win, but that all went awry as well. But um, So we were told we had to do a deal with Russia and that, that's what was attempted. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that probably answers that part of the question. And and uh, eventually, of course, we know. Um, spoiler alert: the Australian bid doesn't win. When when did you get the sense that? At what point in time were you were you starting to feel like um, maybe this bid might not might not work? Uh, gosh, almost from the beginning, really. Because if you looked at it, um, um, if you, if you if you looked at it rationally. You know, I said that I thought FIFA's plan was all along was for Russia and the US to win and Russia in 2018 and the US in 2022. If you looked at the arguments for and against that scenario, for example, it was overwhelming. Um, you know, people used to say that back then, and I'm now talking 10 years ago in 2009, oh, but, you know, the US hosted it in 1994. But the fact is that would have been 28 years later by the time 2022 came along. So, and there's a whole new generation of players and a whole new generation of broadcasters and sponsors in the US, which is one of the world's biggest markets and is, you know, along with probably India and China and, and, and Indonesia is, you know, if I was, if I was setting st strategic direction for football internationally, 
they are four big markets that need to be conquered. Um, so, and of course, US has the capacity. So from the very beginning, we always saw the US as, as one of the big rivals for 2022. I must admit, I raised the question about Qatar and was sort of cut down by one of our consultants and sort of, you know, are you stupid? But my thoughts on Qatar were, you know, let's go back to 2009 when all of this was happening, is that a, a World Cup in the Middle East would be a very powerful political statement. I put it, Putting aside what anything whatever else happened behind closed doors and the proverbial brown paper bags and deals between nation states if you just look at the bids on their merits um it would be easy to to position a bid from the middle east as being very powerful geopolitically for the world so i i didn't dismiss qatar like some other people did um but the us was certainly the strongest rivals and Qatar, Qatar was there as well. I then knew, I guess, officially that we weren't going, weren't going to win when the then CEO of um, FIFA, Jerome Valka, actually told us. He said, uh, we were standing in the foyer of FIFA headquarters in Zurich and Jerome Valka said, you know you're not going to win. This was in July 2009. And the reason we weren't going to win, he told us, uh, is that we couldn't be competitive commercially, and this gets back to the US in particular. And, you know, I, I thought about, uh, at the time I turned to my, you know, afterwards in a, in a debriefing with my boss, I said, shouldn't we tell people that we're not going to win and shouldn't we stop taking this money from government and handing it back? But the argument was, was well, no, we shouldn't because we'll just position ourselves um, as being the strongest, the best bid from Asia and it's Asia's turn to get it and Asia is the biggest growth area for football around the world, which is absolutely true. You know, 75% of the world's population is in the Asian Football Confederation region. Um, but I sort of pointed out, well, if we're going to make that argument for us in relation to Asia, it could also apply to the other bidders from Asia because there was not only Qatar, there was also Indonesia at the time, although they subsequently pulled out, um, Japan and Korea. So here were we you know, getting work done from one of the big consulting firms on the growth of Asia and, and what that could mean for TV revenues, etc. But that argument applied equally to four other bidders. So, you know, from my perspective, having worked in government, um, I, I think you know, if that had been me making that decision, um, I would have gone to the government at least and said, look, the CEO of FIFA has told us that we're not going to win. Um, what do you want us to do? And let the government make the decision. It could well have been for the reasons that we outlined earlier, you know, the, the UN security seat, et cetera, the, the government may well have or positioning brand Australia on an international uh, platform. Um, that's not a bad thing at all, of course. Um the government may well have said, "Yep, just keep going," but they might also have said, "No, let's let's pull out now and and you know uh, cut our losses." But we didn't do that. Um, and yet, there were, you know, after I left in 2010, and and bearing in mind, I was sacked because the consultants said I was going to lose them the World Cup, um, that we wouldn't win because I was there, which is hilarious, um, and. You know, it, throughout 2010, uh, and I, you know, present the evidence in relation to this in the book, um, the people that ran our bid um, 
either continue to believe that we were going to win or certainly continue to deceive that we were going to win. And yet you talk to people and without without spoiling um, spoiling the, the towards the end of the book, I, you know, I have a very interesting conversation with a very high-placed person within FIFA who confirms that we were just never going to win <laughs> because FIFA had other plans. Yeah. People need to read the book for that, for that last, uh, those last few chapters alone. <laughs> I think if you're interested at all in FIFA, you need to, you need to read. Um, so, so then I, I guess, you know, from your perspective, how do you understand Russia and then Qatar? What, what happened there? I, I, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, just kind of what, what are your sense of what happens? Cause I, I think for me reading, reading it and then filtering it through maybe things that uh, happen later and, and, and you cover these later in the book, you get the sense that uh, there was, uh, there was, um, or at least there's the, 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 the sense that there's some kind of corruption happening, but there's also within FIFA people who clearly weren't going to vote for the USA in 2022, no matter what, because they didn't like America. And then there was kind of solidarity within the Asian Federation. And then um, there was vote trading. So how do we understand what happened for 2018 and 2022 anyway? I, look, I think US probably could have won it, um, but the votes that counted in the end were the votes that Michel Platini um, moved with him. So he he had a little block of about four or five voters. And um, I recount this in the book, and it's also been reported in the public domain that um, not long before the vote, he was summoned to a, a, a dinner at the Elysee Palace with then President Nicolas Sarkozy, and there was the person who is now the Emir of Qatar. He was then the Crown Prince, and it was there wasn't you know from all reports, and I, you know, I've spoken with a, a number of people also. It wasn't oh, oh Michelle, you must vote for Qatar, um, but it was more along the lines of. Uh, you know, it wouldn't it be nice if Qatar Airways bought a whole lot of Airbus aircraft? Or wouldn't it be nice if Paris Saint-Germain was saved uh, because they were in financial difficulty at the time? And, you know, Michel Platini got the, got the message. Uh, he and his voters voted for Qatar. That swung 2022 towards Qatar. And, um, you know, back in the um, Dubai air show in November, of 2011, so that's now 11 months after the vote. Sure enough, Qatar Airways bought something like 92 Airbus aircraft and four Boeing aircraft. So, you know, Paris Saint-Germain was indeed saved. It was bought by the person who owns owns um, what is now being sports, Al Jazeera Sport. Um, Sarkozy's son got a job with them. Not to say he wasn't qualified for the job, but of all the people in all the world, he was the one who got the job. So there are all these sorts of things, uh, not Sarkozy's son, sorry, Platini's son. There are all these sorts of things that, that went on. Um, and I think Qatar was very clever. You know, if, when you go back to the July 2009 conversation that Jerome Valka had with us when he said you're not going to be competitive commercially, I wouldn't be surprised if he also said that to Qatar. The difference is Qatar, um, where the 
line between state and commercial operations and, um, you know, the, where a country wants to take itself, where it's much more blurred than it is, for example, in a country like Australia or the US. Qatar's uh, B in sports, it was, it was then Al Jazeera, um, offered a $100 million, what, what is called a production contribution to FIFA if the World Cup was held in Qatar in 2022. Now, that offer was made just weeks out from the vote. And I have to say, since then, the, the US networks of the US, Canadian, and Mexican networks have done the same in relation to the 2026 World Cup. So it's almost become a way of doing business. Well, you know, if, if to, to boost to boost the commercial um, competitiveness and viability of a particular bid, uh, the broadcasters who are, after all, those who get the most money out of these things, um, make a an additional contribution above and beyond what they've already paid for rights. And, you know, Qatar perfected that model in relation to 2022. On top of that, um, you know, there's reports of uh, deals and arrangements, um, bet- again, between nation states, between Russia and Qatar, um, Russia and other countries. And this is the way, this is why I think when it comes to things such as the Garcia report and also the supposedly ongoing investigations by US, Swiss, French and English authorities, um, there are a number of levels of corruption. Everybody thinks corruption is about brown paper bags and you know, pe- people getting cash in a brown paper bag and then trotting off back home and spending the money. We've heard of of, of um, arrangements where money has been put into a 13-year-old's bank account that's the daughter of some of these people. But it also happens in other ways. You know, FIFA's great way of moving run- money around at that time was um, development monies. So, you know, that's Australia. Australia was involved with that. Um, we gave... US half a million dollars to the Trinidad and Tobago Football Federation about two months out or three months out from the vote uh, and it ended up in someone's personal bank account, the voter's personal bank account. That someone just happens to be Jack Warner who is probably, you know, he's still sitting out um, fighting the US extradition in Trinidad and Tobago. But that's that was part of the model is um, it might, while not everybody would have, so blatantly got it into their personal bank account, um, they would clip the ticket on the way through with development money. So that's one way. Another way was through um, friendly internationals. So you know, whenever two countries play a friendly international, there's a bit of argy-bargy around what's the fee going to be, what costs are going to be covered by the host country, and then who gets the broadcast rights. So if you, uh, and I, I said this to Garcia, if you track all of the friendly internationals that happened between, say, 2009 and even up to 2012, because some of these deals were still rolling out, you'll see that a lot of bidding nations played voting nations. Um, so that that's, that's what was happening. And then, of course, there is the government-to-government deals that take place. Um, and, you know, governments do these things all the time. For example... Um, you know, if, if Qatar and Russia make a deal about uh, a gas pipeline, that's not unusual. Um, there's nothing inherently corrupt about it, but it comes back to the timing of it and why it, the context in which those negotiations take place. Um, and that's where, you know, they 
the the countries who won 2018 2022 played their hands quite cleverly in that respect because there have been no findings of individual bribe making or bribe taking around them um but they did or they did undertake or did undertake a number of sort of strategic deals that might have sort of assisted the process yeah i i, I your book and, and subsequent reporting really lays out some of the the case for that, although it also illuminates the fact that maybe, um, you know, Russia and Qatar weren't alone in these things. And I think you hear you saying again today that maybe all of the bids are implicated. In some ways, that's that's a bit of the FIFA story, perhaps, that um, in the end, you know, nobody is, is entirely clean in the process. In reading your book, it was a little depressing at times because I kept waiting for someone um, other than yourself <laughs> uh, and a few other people, I will, I will admit uh, to, 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 you know, stand, to stand up and say, oh, this is just ridiculous. Why are we doing this? But it seems like um, sometimes that FIFA just has so much sway and the World Cup is so important. It only happens once every four years that, that people in their, in their desire to, to be the ones to host implicate themselves, countries, journalists, consultants, FIFA administrators governments, everybody. And so I was wondering if you could just talk about, about the, the pressures that maybe were going on, not just inside the Australian bid, but also that you saw in other places. So what, what, would, what is it about the World Cup and FIFA that might make us behave in ways that we wouldn't otherwise behave in? Well, I think the key thing is that with whoever hosts the World Cup, there's an enormous amount of soft power that is delivered to them immediately. <laughs> um, you know, you only have to look at Russia 2018 to to see the proof in the pudding of that because, you know, going into that World Cup, we had, um, they have human rights violations in relation to uh, the LGBTI community. Um, they have thrown people in jail who dare to make a political protest. They um, have got the enormous doping issue in relation to Sochi and their, their, their sports minister um, overseeing that whole doping campaign and the issues of which Grigory Rachenkov and the Stepanovs have, have spoken so courageously about. Um, and yet all of that was forgotten because, of course, they're capable of hosting a World Cup and, you know, the ordinary Russian person's a great person just like the ordinary Australian and the ordinary American and the ordinary Qatari. But um, yeah, there was no doubt, you know, it gave, it gave everybody a focus on Russia for those five weeks and it allowed Russia to present itself differently to the world and it also gave people such as uh, Vladimir Putin enormous access to a whole range of people. You only have to see... I mean, he would get that obviously as Russian president, but you know that they're coming to his country um, where he is a host, and uh, that they are all standing in court with him, so to speak. So I think that's why they like to do it. I know from an Australian perspective, whenever we've hosted one of a, a major world event, you know, such as the '56 Olympics, the 2000 Olympics, even the 1988 um, Commonwealth Games, um, um, and world expo and things like that it does help elevate you to a different level globally and be noticed so i think they're the major reasons why governments like to to um bid for these major events 
as I mentioned in relation to us, um, we certainly saw it as a way of, of getting financial security for our sport. Um, and then, of course, there's just the, for individual fans um, and players, it's just the whole idea of having this great big circus in town for four or five weeks and how wonderful it is. And it is wonderful. I remember the Sydney 2000 Olympics, you know, the, the two weeks of that was, it was fantastic. I mean, the public transport in Sydney even worked for once. <laughs> and that's such a rare thing. Um, so, you know, there, there's any number of reasons. There are, you know, the three major reasons why I think you know, at, at national, uh, na- um, national sporting body and individual level why people want to host these big events. But nonetheless, you find people un- unwilling to, I mean, w- without naming any names again, uh, in, in your book, you talk about journalists who have some of the dirt on the story, but just won't write about it. Um, you know, you have FIFA administrators who behind closed doors will talk to you about why the Australian bid's not going to work. Uh, again, without naming any names, you have to read the last few chapters <laughs> of this book. I think they're really, <laughs> they're really illuminating. As to what was going on at FIFA at the time, but uh, people are willing to talk about these things privately, but they're not willing to talk about them publicly. And I, I just, is, I just is it the litigiousness of FIFA? Is it the difficulties, uh, the the power that's that's held there in in Switzerland because they can control the game? Or uh, it, it's it's just um, you know amazing to me. Yeah, I think it is, and it gets back to a question you asked earlier about you know actually working on these things and how do you feel? It, it, you know, I've written previously, not in not in the book, but just in an article where I said you've almost got to be prepared to put your principles at the door as you walk through, um, because you know while you're in there, they are going to be compromised. And why do people not speak out? Well, what one it's, the FIFA way is is not to speak out; it's to let all these deals happen, and you know. Famously, people who have worked in FIFA have said, you know, we're there to make sure that it keeps ticking over the way the FIFA president or the FIFA CEO or the other FIFA the football politicians want it to do. And, you know, they do get to the stage where they either have to compromise their values totally um, or walk away. And when you see what happens to those people who do speak out, such as myself, you know, you're sacked. <laughs> you know, and and worse over the over the subsequent seven to eight years when I after I was sacked, it it, it got worse and kept getting worse for many many years. And in fact, if anything, the book has been a bit of a halt to that for me. Um, but and it wasn't just in Australia that you're harangued and dismissed and um all sorts of things happened to you was internationally and, you know, in, a, in some senses I think in Australia a lot of people didn't even realise what was happening to me and also another a woman whistleblower um, because, you know, football isn't quite, it, it isn't the number one sport here so it didn't, not a lot of people took a lot of notice but it was really pretty horrific few years um, and that's what the system does to you and it does it very ruthlessly and very effectively. It was, I have to admit, disappointing uh, being in the U.S. at the at the point uh, of the beginning of all these investigations. There was the sense uh, that oh, this this country that doesn't even love football that much, does it not a soccer nation in the way that uh, you know the U.K., uh, France is. 
was going to be leading the charge in, in challenging FIFA. But then um, in your account uh, with your, uh, with your um, conversations with these FBI investigators, they seem to be very disinterested in it. You know, it was, it was a little bit disheartening because they had a moment maybe where they could have made a bigger impact. But I, I, it seems to me, and uh, do you feel like this is true that, that, once the headlines were gone, they were less interested. I think that's the case, and um, and and certainly, you know, we read now in Switzerland where the person who occupied the office of what we would call in Australia the director of public prosecutions, um, he had to leave the Swiss uh, Attorney General's department because of his compromise on some football issues, and now even the Attorney General is being compromised potentially or allegedly um, because of a relationship with the new FIFA president, Gianni Infantino. So that's extraordinarily disappointing and um, it suggests, you know, that it is such a cosy relationship that Switzerland loves having their international sporting bodies there and they'll do anything to protect them, I think. Um, in relation to the US authorities, I you know, if you read my book and also read some other books that have been written um, more recently too, is I think the US went as far as it did because the case, which originally started with a match-fixing case, um, I think the case fell into the lap of an individual IRS agent uh, who happened to be a football fan. And he saw the names and he saw what was going on and he actually started pursuing it further and took that further both within the IRS and the FBI. And, uh, you know, you only have to look at what has been the rate of indictments um, in the past two years as opposed to sort of the, the rush in 2015 and, as you said, the headlines in 2015, and there's been none. And yet for so many years we were told, and I'm, I'm talking about people who have assisted the authorities as well, people like myself, people like the Qatar whistleblower, people I, I know who have worked in FIFA and who have given up their jobs because they just couldn't work there anymore. You know, we've all given up our livelihoods um, and these authorities said they were going to continue to investigate, but they haven't or they don't seem to be. And yet, yeah, as usual, what they do is, you, you talk to them and they swear you to secrecy and don't tell anyone what, what you're talking to us about and we're continuing to investigate but nothing's happening. It's not even a case of, in in our case, you know, we're part of the Asian Football Confederation now and I've spoken with people who say there's a lot to look at within the Asian Football Confederation and yet nothing's happened and that's extraordinarily disappointing and that that's... At the end of the day, you know, people ask people ask me, Are you would you would you do it again? Are you sorry that you did it? And my answer to that is no, I'm not sorry. Would I do it again? Yes, I would, because fundamentally I've got to live with myself and my children um, and show them some values and leadership. But, you know, if I could see those individual FBI or IRS agents or Swiss authorities again and I would love to ask them what the bloody hell have they been doing for the past number of years? Is there is there any hope for overcoming fixing um, the FIFA way? Is that something that has to happen in the grassroots, or you know, is is there any hope for international football outside of this FIFA way? 
I think um, I, I think grassroots is very important. I think you know pressure from the bottom is very important, and that's what we and when I say we myself, um, a, a, pers- a Swiss Australian or it's no longer Swiss Australian businessman, English Australian businessman, um, and also uh, Damien Collins MP, who's the head of the Culture, Media, and Sport Committee in the House of Commons. We started a campaign group known as New FIFA Now, and we we set up um, a charter for what for FIFA reform. And what we would see as a as a means of achieving a better type of international football organisation, and we had some successes with that, particularly in relation to human rights issues. Uh, but you do need to keep the pressure on. You do need the grassroots, bottom up support, and you do more, most importantly need sponsorship support. The reason that we got some action on the human rights one, there was a perfect storm because other people were interested too, but we started um, looking at the human right, rights aspects of the FIFA decisions on, on Qatar 2022 and Russia 2018. In 2015, before the FIFA arrests, we raised the, the, the logical question that if, if sponsors such as Coca-Cola and Adidas and McDonald's and Visa have policies, which are on their websites, the human rights policies and policies about how business should be conducted, how could they, you know, we put to them, how can you support a decision that's resulted in, in this particular World Cup? And it was branded as the Hypocrisy World Cup. That had, even before the FIFA arrests, that had an impact with some of those sponsors. They, they contacted us and they talked to us. And then the FIFA arrests in 2015 came along. Uh, and, you know, the reason that um, there was so much pressure put on FIFA for to have a human rights policy and to bring in an expert such as Professor John Ruggie from Harvard University, who's one of the leading world experts on human rights issues, is because that started with a grassroots campaign that we we pushed and we advocated for, along with you know other other civil organisations as well. So I think that's absolutely important. But of course, it gets back to you know who's interested in these issues. Um, probably one percent of one percent. <laughs> Um, you know, most of us just want to go to the football and enjoy the or the soccer and just enjoy the game for what it is and not care about the politics. I, I, I've even had people say to me, you know, why do you bother? What, why do you care so much? But it's because I care about the sport and because I really firmly believe that sport does reflect society. And, um, you know, you look at some of the issues that we're addressing in our societies and our communities now, I think it says a lot about how we also view our sport. And I think if you love a sport, um, you should also care about who's running it, how they're running it, and what they're doing with the resources that are available to them, which are not their resources. It's not their football, it's our football. Um, and what are they doing as custodians of the game on our behalf? I, I mean, I, I, I agree completely. And I think if you look at what's going on in NRL here in Australia, you can see the necessity of maintaining a, a, a an appealing brand, maybe you would call it, that that people who are interested in the game, who value the game, who enjoy the game, want to want want to align themselves with. And certainly, there are moments for myself as a as a, a football fan where I I think, oh, you know, I really I really like this team, but. Uh, then you go to you go to the fan environment, and you know you go stand in the in certain parts of this 
Parc des Princes, for example, watching Paris Saint-Germain, and all of a sudden you think, ah, you know what, I can't support this team anymore. And sometimes I feel that way about FIFA too, um, that maybe I shouldn't watch the World Cup, but I still find myself watching. <laughs> well, well, I'm exactly the same. I mean, I, I sort of thought, oh, am I going to watch Russia 2018? But of course I did. <laughs> I watched, I watched, of course I watched Australia and I watched all the other big games as well. And you you can you get to the point where you can divorce yourself um and you have to divorce yourself from that aspect of the sport because you love the sport but still want to still care enough about it to see it get right and and you know the the other part of the question you asked was can it ever be right um and putting aside what we were talking about in terms of bottom up grassroots um pressure as well as pressure from sponsors and broadcasters um the the other part of it too is in a at, at the time when the fifa reforms came in in 2016 they were in a lot of trouble and one model that could if they hadn't been able to maintain their victim status with the us and swiss authorities and, and both of those authorities allowed that to happen for fifa to be seen as the victim an alternative would have been to treat them almost as a company and an administration and you bring in a, we always advocated for an eminent person or more or less as an administrator to completely reset the organisation, reset its policies, its operations, how it goes about electing its its um, executive or its council as it now calls itself and um, the types of the, who should have a say in um, in how it's held accountable uh you know, bring in greater, real greater democracy. You know, have there enorm- two enormous stakeholder groups that have no say in the game at the moment, and that's pl- um, players and fans. And I think, um, and that that applies not only at FIFA level but at football federation levels across the world, and those two hundred and twelve member associations. Um, you know, ideally, that's what we'd be aiming for. But is that a long way off? Yes, it is. E- even in countries such as ours, who would have a better innate um, acceptance of, of those issues, it, it's still a long way off. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me here today, Benita. You've given us a lot to think about. As a, as a final question, um, maybe you can tell us what you're up to now, any projects in the future we can look forward to? Well, I have started a publishing company, actually, <laughs> although I didn't publish um, my own book. But um, one of the things that you know, getting back to my love of football, one of the things that concerns me greatly in Australia is that people st- some people seem to think that football started in this country in 2005 when we qualified for the World Cup, but in fact we have a rich history and a rich heritage and I'm tapping into people who know about that history and heritage and have researched it and I guess um, been caring about that for years and inviting them to write books which we're publishing and so we're telling Australia's football history almost one book at a time it's called fair play publishing sounds great I I have a a PhD student I'm working with working on a history of the Matildas so I'll have to let her know to get in touch with you too oh please do (laughs) yes all right thank you very much we were speaking today with Bonita Merciades author of Whatever It Takes, The Inside Story of the FIFA Way, out from uh, Powderhouse Press in 2018. You should read it because then you'll get all the names we didn't mention (laughs) uh, in our interview. Um, 
And you should read it because it's a fascinating insider's account of what happened with the Australian bid for 2018-2022. This has been Keith Rathbone coming to you from Macquarie University for new books and sports. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again, Bonita, for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thank you.